Section 16 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams. Section 16. It must contain, in heterogeneous admixture, the great boulders, the lesser rock fragments, the gravel chips, the sand, and the slimy mud, these settling down quietly in the cold, gloomy waters, overshadowed by the great ice sheet, must form such an agglomeration as we find in the boulder clay and tills, and lie just in those places where these deposits abound, provided the relative level of land and sea during the glacial epoch were suitable. I should make one additional remark relative to the composition of this deposit, viz. that under the conditions supposed, the original material detached from the rocks around the upper portions of the glaciers would suffer a far greater degree of attrition at the glacier bottom than it obtains in modern alpine glaciers, inasmuch as in these it is removed by the glacier torrent which it has attained a certain degree of fineness, while in the greater glaciers of the glacial epoch, it would be carried much further in association with the solid ice, and be subjected to more grinding and regrinding against the bottom. Hence a larger portion of slimy mud would be formed, capable of finally enduring into stiff clay such as forms the matrix of the till and boulder clay. The long journey of the bottom debris stratum of the glacier, and its final deposition when in a state of neutral equilibrium between its own tendency to repose and the forward thrust of the glacier would obviously tend to arrange the larger fragments of rock in the manner in which they are found embedded in the till, i.e. the oblong fragments lying with their longer axes and their best marked striae in the direction of the motion of the glacier. The striated pavements of the till are thus easily explained. They are the surface upon which the ice advanced when its deposits had reached the critical or neutral height. Such a pavement would continually extend outwards. The only sorting of the material likely to occur under these conditions would be that due to the earlier deposition and entanglement of the larger fragments, thus producing a more stony deposit nearer inland, just as Mr. Geeky describes the actual deposits of till, where, generally speaking, the stones are most numerous in the till of hilly districts, while at the lower levels of the country the clay character of the mass is upon the whole more pronounced. These hilly districts, upon the supposition of greater submergence, would be the near shore regions and the lower levels the deeper sea where the glacier floated freely. The following is Mr. Geeky's description of the distribution of the till, page 13. It is in the lower-lying districts of the country, where till appears in greatest force. Wide areas of the central counties are covered up with it continuously, to a depth varying from two or three feet up to one hundred feet and more. But as we follow it towards the mountain regions, it becomes thinner and more interrupted. The naked rock ever and anon, peering through, 
until at least we find only a few shreds and patches lying here and there in sheltered hollows of the hills. Throughout the northern highlands, it occurs but rarely, and only in little isolated patches. It is not until we get away from the steep rocky declivities and narrow glens and gorges, and enter upon the broader valleys that open out from the base of the highland mountains to the low-lying districts beyond, that we meet with any considerable deposits of stony clay. The higher districts of the southern uplands are almost equally free from any covering of till. This description is precisely the same as I must have written, had I so far continued my imaginary sketch of the results of ancient glaciation, as to picture what must remain after the glaciers had all melted away, and the sea had receded sufficiently to expose their submarine deposits. Throughout the above, I have assumed a considerable submergence of the land, as compared with the present sea level on the coasts of Scotland, Scandinavia, etc. The universality of the terraces in all the Norwegian valleys, opening westward, proves a submergence of at least 600 or 700 feet. When I first visited Norway in 1856, I accepted the usual description of these as alluvial deposits, was looking for glacial vestiges in the form of moraines, and thus quite failed to observe the true nature of these vast accumulations, which was obvious enough when I re-examined them in the light of more recent information. Some few are alluvial, but they are exceptional and of minor magnitude. As an example of such alluvial terraces, I may mention those near the mouth of the Romsdal, that are well seen from the Ak Hotel, and which a Russian prince or other soldier merely endowed with military eyes might easily mistake for artificial earthworks erected for the defense of the valley. In this case, as in the others where the terraces are alluvial, the valley is a narrow one, occupied by a relatively wide river loaded with recent glacial debris. It evidently filled the valley during the period of glacial recession. The ordinary wider valleys with a river that has cut a narrow channel through the widespread terrace flats display a different formation. Near the mouth of such valleys I have seen cuttings of more than a hundred feet in depth through an unbroken terrace of most characteristic till, with other traces rising above it. This is the ordinary constitution of the lower portions of most of the Scandinavian terraces. These terraces are commonly topped with quite a different stratum, which at first I regarded as a subsequent alluvial or estuarine deposit. But further examination suggested another explanation of the origin of some portions of this superficial stratum, to which I shall refer hereafter. Such terraces prove a rise of sea or depression of land during the glacial epoch, to the extent of 600 feet as a minimum, while the well-known deposits of Arctic shells at Moltrefon and the accompanying drift had led Professor Ramsey to estimate the probable amount of submergence during some part of the glacial period at about 2300 feet. It would be out of place here to reproduce the data upon which geologists have based their rather divergent opinions respecting the actual extent of the submergence of the western coast of North Europe. All agree that a great submergence occurred, but differ only as to its extent their estimates varying between 1,000 and 3,000 feet. There is one important consideration that must not be overlooked, viz. 
that if my view of the submarine origin of the till be correct, the mere submergence of the land at the glacial period does not measure the difference between the depth of the sea at that and the present time, seeing that the deposits from the glaciers must have shallowed it very materially. It is only after contemplating thoroughly the present form of the granitic and metamorphic hills of Scandinavia, hills that are always angular when subjected only to subaerial weathering, that one can form an adequate conception of the magnitude of this shallowing deposit. The rounding, shaving, grinding, planing, and universal abrasion everywhere displayed appear to me to justify the conclusion that if the sea were now raised to the level of the terraces, i.e. 600 feet higher than at present, the mass of matter abraded from the original Scandinavian mountains and lying under the sea would exceed the whole mass of mountain left standing above it. The first question suggested by reading Mr. Geeky's book was whether the terraces are wholly or partially formed of till, and more especially, whether their lower portions are thus composed. This, as already stated, was easily answered by the almost unanimous reply of all the many Norwegian valleys I traversed. Any tourist may verify this. The next question was whether the same till extends below the sea. This was not so easily answered by the means at my disposal, as I traveled hastily round the coast from Stavanger via the North Cape to the frontier of Russian Lapland in ordinary passenger steam packets, which made their stoppages to suit other requirements than mine. Still, I was able to land at many stations, and found, wherever there was a gently sloping strand at the mouth of an estuary, or of a valley whose river had already deposited its suspended matter, a common case hereabouts where so many rivers terminate in long estuaries, or open out into bag-shaped lakes near the coast, and where the bottom had not been modified by secondary glaciation, that the receding tide displayed a sea-bottom of till, covered with a thin stratum of loose stones and shells. In some cases the till was so bare that it appeared like a stiff mud deposited but yesterday. At Buda, an Arctic coast station on the north side of the mouth of the Salton Fjord, latitude 67 degrees 20 minutes, where the packets make a long halt, is a very characteristic example of this. A deposit of very tough till forming an extensive plain just beyond the sea level. The tide rises over this, and the waves break upon it, forming a sort of beach by washing away some of the finer material and leaving the stones behind. The ground being so nearly level, the reach of the tide is very great, and thus a large area is exposed at low tide. Continuous with this, and beyond the limit of high tide, is an extensive inland plain covered with coarse grass and weeds growing directly upon the surface of the original flat pavement of till. There is no river at Buda. The sea is clear, leaves no appreciable deposit, and the degree of denudation of the clay matrix of the till is very much smaller than might be expected. The limit of high water is plainly shown by a beach of shells and stones, but at low tide the ground over which the sea has receded is a bare and scarcely modified surface of till, 
I have observed the same at low water at many other Arctic stations. In the Tromsosund, there are shallows at some distance from the shore which are, which are just covered with water at low tide. I landed and waited on these, and found the bottom to consist of till, covered with a thin layer of shells, odd fragments of earthenware, and other rubbish thrown overboard from vessels. It is evident that breakers of considerable magnitude are necessary for the loosening of this tough, compact deposit, that it is very slightly, if at all, affected by the mere flow of running water. I specify these instances as characteristic and easy of verification, as the packets all stop at these stations, but a yachtsman sailing at leisure amidst the glorious coastal scenery of the Arctic Ocean might multiply such observations a hundredfold by stopping wherever such strands are indicated in passing. I saw a multitude of these in places where I was unable to go ashore and examine them. A further question in this direction suggested itself on the spot, viz. what is the nature of the banks which constitute the fishing grounds of Norway, Iceland, Newfoundland, etc.? They are submarine plains, unquestionably. They must have a high degree of fertility in order to supply food for the hundreds of millions of voracious codfish, coalfish, haddocks, halibut, etc., that people them. These large fishes all feed on the bottom, their chief food being mollusca and crustacea, which must find, either directly or indirectly, some pasture of vegetable origin. These banks are, in fact, great meadows or feeding grounds for the lower animals which support the higher. From the Lafutin bank alone, 20 millions of codfish are taken annually besides those devoured by the vast multitude of seabirds. Now, this bank is situated precisely where, according to the above-stated view of the origin of the till, there should be a huge deposit. It occupies the Vestfjord, i.e., the opening between the mainland and the Lofoden Islands, extending from Moskines to Lodingen on Hindu, just where the culminating masses of the Kjolan Mountains must have poured their greatest glaciers into the sea by a westward course, and these glaciers must have been met by another stream pouring from the north, formed by the glaciers of Hindu and Senyeño, and both must have coalesced with a third flood pouring through the Ofutin Fjord, the Tisfjord, etc., from the mainland. The Vest Fjord is about 60 miles wide at its mouth, and narrows northward till it terminates in the Ofutin Fjord, which forks into several branches eastward. A glance at a good map will show that here. According to my explanation of the origin of the till, there should be the greatest of all submarine plains of till, which the ancient Scandinavian glaciers have produced, and of which the plains of till I saw on the coast of at Bode, which lies just to the mouth of the west of the Vest Fjord, where the Salton Fjord flows into it, are but the slightly inclined continuation. Some idea of this bank may be formed from the fact that outside of the Lofudens, the sea is 100 to 200 fathoms in depth, that it suddenly shoals up to 16 or 20 fathoms on the east side of these rocks, 
and this shallow plain extends across the whole fifty or sixty miles between these islands and the mainland it must not be supposed the fjords or inlets of scandinavia are usually shallower than the open sea the contrary is commonly the case especially with the narrowest and those which run farthest inland they are very much deeper than the open sea if space permitted i could show that the great storgen bank opposite alsund and molde where the Storfjord, Moldfjord, etc., were the former outlets of the glaciers from the highest of all the Scandinavian mountains, and the several banks of Finnmark, etc., from which, in the aggregate, are taken another twenty or thirty million of codfish annually, are all situated just where, theoretically, they ought to be found. The same is the case with the great bank of Newfoundland and the banks around Iceland, which are annually visited by large numbers of French fishermen from Dunkirk, Bologna, and other ports. Whenever the packet halted over these banks during our coasting trip, we demonstrated their fertility by casting a line or two over the bulwark. No bait was required, merely a double hook with a flat shank attached to a heavy leaden plummet. The line was sunk till the lead touched the bottom. A few jerks were given, and then a tug was felt. The line was hauled in with a codfish or halibut hooked, not inside the mouth, but externally by the gill plates, the back, the tail, or otherwise. The mere jerking of a hook near the bottom was sufficient to bring it in contact with some of the population. There is a very prolific bank lying between the North Cape and Nordkien, where the Porsanger and Laxfjords unite their openings. Here we were able, with only three lines, to cover the foredeck of the packet with struggling victims in the course of short halts of fifteen to thirty minutes, not having any sounding apparatus by which to fairly test the nature of the sea bottom in these places. I cannot offer any direct proof that it was composed of till. By dropping the lead, I could feel it sufficiently to be certain that it was not rock in any case, but a soft deposit, and the marks upon the bottom of the lead, so far as they went, afforded evidence in favor of its clay character. A further investigation of this would be very interesting. But the most striking, I may say astounding, evidence of the fertility of these banks, one which appeals most powerfully to the senses, is the marvelous colony of seabirds at Sverholtkluben, the headland between the two last-named fjords. I dare not estimate the numbers that rose from the rocks and darkened the sky when we blew the steam whistle in passing. I doubt whether there is any other spot in the world where an equal amount of animal life is permanently concentrated. All these feed on fish, and an examination of the map will show why. In accordance with the above speculations, they should have chosen Sverholtkluben as the best fishing ground on the Arctic face of Europe. I am fully conscious of the main difficulty that stands in the way of my explanation of the formation of the till, viz. that of finding sufficient water to float the ice, and should have given it up had I accepted Mr. Geeky's estimate of the thickness of the great ice sheet of the Great Ice Age. He says, on page 186, that... The ice which covered the low grounds of Scotland during the early cold stages of the glacial epoch 
was certainly more than 2,000 feet in thickness, and it must have been even deeper than this between the mainland and the outer Hebrides. To cause such a mass to float, the sea around Scotland would require to become deeper than now, by 1,400 or 1,500 feet at least. I am unable to understand by what means Mr. Geeky measured this depth of the ice which covered these low grounds, except by assuming that its surface was level with that of the upper ice marks of the hills beyond. The following passage on page 63 seems to indicate that he really has measured it thus. Now the scratches may be traced from the islands and the coastline up to an elevation of at least 3,500 feet. So that ice must have covered the country to that height at least. In the highlands, the tide of ice streamed out from the central elevations down all the main straths and glens. And by measuring the height attained by the smoothed and rounded rocks, we are enabled to estimate roughly the probable thickness of the old ice sheet. But it can only be a rough estimate, for so long a time has elapsed since the ice disappeared. The rain and frost together would have split up and worn down the rocks of these highland mountains that much of the smoothing and polishing has vanished. But although the finer marks of the ice chisel have thus frequently been obliterated, yet the broader effects remain conspicuous enough. From an extensive examination of these, we gather that the ice could not have been less and was probably more than 3,000 feet thick in its deepest parts. Page 80, he says, Bearing in mind the vast thickness reached by the Scotch ice sheet, it becomes very evident that the ice would flow along the bottom of the sea with as much ease as it poured across the land, and every island would be surmounted and crushed, and scored and polished just as readily as the hills of the mainland were. Mr. Geeky describes the Scandinavian ice sheet in similar terms, but ascribes to it a still greater thickness. He says, page 404, The whole country has been molded and rubbed and polished by an immense sheet of ice, which could hardly have been less than 6,000 or even 7,000 feet thick. And he maintains that this spread over the sea and coalesced with the ice sheet of Scotland. My recollection of the Lafouden Islands, which from their position afford an excellent, crucial test of this question, led me to believe that their configuration presented a direct refutation of Mr. Geeky's remarkable inference. But a mere recollection of scenery, being too vague, a second visit was especially desirable in reference to this point. The result of the special observations I made during this second visit fully confirmed the impression derived from memory. I found in the first place that all along the coast from Stavanger to the Varanger Fjord, every rock near the shore is glaciated. Among the thousands of low-lying ridges that peer above the water to various heights, none near the mainland are angular. The general character of these is shown in the sketch of My Sea Serpent in the last edition of Through Norway with a Knapsack. The rocks which constitute the extreme outlying limits of the Lefouden group, and which are between 60 and 70 miles from the shore, although meteorologically corresponding with those near the shore, are totally different in their conformation, as the sketch of three characteristic specimens plainly shows. 
Mr. Everest very aptly com compares them to shark's teeth. Proceeding northward, these rocks gradually progress in magnitude until they become mountains of 3,000 to 4,000 feet in height. Their outspread bases from large islands and the vest fjord gradually narrows. The remarkably angular and jagged character of these rocks, when weathered in the air, renders it very easy to trace the limits of glaciation on viewing them at a distance. The outermost and smallest rocks show from a distance no signs of glaciation. If submerged, the ice of the Great Ice Age was then enough to float over without touching them. If they stood above the sea, as at present, they suffered no more glaciation than would be produced by such an ice sheet as that of the paleocrystic ice recently found by Captain Nares on the north of Greenland. Progressing northward, the glaciation begins to become visible, running up to about 100 feet above the sea level on the islands lying westward and southward of Ostwagen. Further northward along the coast of Ostwagen and Hindu, the level gradually rises to about 500 feet on the northern portion of Ostwagen and up to more than 1,000 feet on Hindu, while on the mainland it reaches 3,000 to 4,000 feet. A remarkable case of such variation or descent of ice level as the ice sheet proceeded seaward is shown at Tromsø. This small oblong island, latitude 69 degrees 40 minutes, on which is the capital town of Finnmark, lies between the mainland and the large mountainous island of Kvalo, with a long sea channel on each side, the Tromosund and the Sandesund, the total width of these two channels and the island itself being about four or five miles. The general line of glaciation from the mainland crosses the broad side of these channels and the island, which has evidently been buried and ground down to its present moderate height of two or three hundred feet. Both of these channels are till-paved. On the east or inland side of the mountains near the coast are glaciated to their summits, are simply Roche Mutanis, over which the reindeer of the Tromsdal Laps range and feed. On the west, the mountains are dark, pyramidal, non-glaciated peaks, with long, vertical snow streaks marking their angular masses. The contrast is very striking when seen from the highest part of the island, and is clearly due to a decline in the thickness of the ice sheet in the course of its journey across this narrow channel. Speaking roughly from my estimation, I should say that this thinning or lowering of the limits of glaciation exceeds 500 feet between the opposite sides of the channel, which, allowing for the hill slopes, is a distance of about six miles. This very small inclination would bring a glacier of 3,000 feet in thickness on the shore down to the sea level in an outward course of 30 miles, or about half the distance between the mainland and the outer rocks of the Lefudens shown in the engraving. I am quite at a loss to understand the reasoning upon which Mr. Geeky bases his firm conviction respecting the depth of the ice sheet on the low grounds of Scotland and Scandinavia. He seems to assume that the glaciers of the Great Ice Age had little or no superficial downslope corresponding to the inclination of the base on which they rested. I have considerable hesitation in attributing this assumption to Mr. Geeky, 
and would rather suppose that I have misunderstood him, as it is a conclusion so completely refuted by all we know of glacier phenomena and the physical laws concerned in their production. But the passages I have quoted, and several others, are explicit and decided. Those geologists who contend for the former existence of a great polar ice cap radiating outwards and spreading into the temperate zones might adopt this mode of measuring its thickness, but Mr. Geeky rejects this hypothesis and shows by his map of the principal lines of glacial erosion in Sweden, Norway, and Finland that the glaciation of the extreme north of Europe proceeded from south to north, that the ice was formed on land and proceeded seawards in all directions. I may add to this testimony that presented by the North Cape, Sverholt, Nordkin, and the rest of the magnificent precipitous headlands that constitute the characteristic feature of the Arctic face of Europe. They stand forth defiantly as a phalanx of giant heralds proclaiming aloud the fallacy of this idea of southward glacial radiation and in concurrence with the structure and striation of the great glacier troughs that lie between them, and the plained tableland at their summits, they established the fact that during the greatest glaciation of the glacial epoch, the ice streams were formed on land, and flowed out to sea, just as they now do at Greenland or other parts of the world where the snow line touches or nearly approaches the level of the sea. All such streams must have followed the slope of the hillsides upon which they rested and down which they flowed, and thus the upper limits of glaciation afford no measure whatever of the thickness of the ice upon the low grounds of Scotland, or of any other glaciated country. As an example, I may refer to Mount Blanc. In climbing this mountain, the journey from the lower ice wall of the Glacier des Besons up to the Bergschrund above the Grand Plateau, is over one continuous ice field, the level of the upper part of which is more than 10,000 feet above its terminal ice wall. Thus, if we take the height of the striations, or smoothings of the upper neve, above the low grounds on which the ice sheet rests, and adopt Mr. Geeky's reasoning, the lower ice wall of the Glacier de Bezons should be 10,000 feet thick. Its actual thickness, as nearly as I can remember, is about 10 or 12 feet. Every other known glacier presents the same testimony. The drawing of a Greenland glacier opposite page 47 of Mr. Geeky's book shows the same under Arctic conditions, and where the ice wall terminates in the sea. I have not visited the Hebrides, but the curious analogy of their position to that of the Lofudens suggests the desirability of similar observations to those I have made in the latter. If the ice between the mainland and the outer Hebrides was, as Mr. Geeky maintains, certainly more than 2,000 feet in thickness, and this stretched across to Ireland, besides uniting with a still thicker ice sheet of Scandinavia, these islands should all be glaciated, especially the smaller rocks. If I am right, the smaller outlying islands those south of Barra, should, like the corresponding rocks of the Lefudens, display no evidence of having been overswept by a deep mer de glace. 
I admit the probability of an ice sheet extending as Mr. Geeky describes, but maintain that it thinned out rapidly seaward, and there became a mere ice flow, such as now impedes the navigation of Smith's Sound and other portions of the Arctic Ocean. The Orkneys and Shetlands, with which I am also unacquainted, must afford similar crucial instances always taking into account the fact that the larger islands may have been independently glaciated by the accumulations due to their own glacial resources. It is the small rocks standing at considerable distance from the shores of larger masses of land that supply the required test conditions. From the above, it will be seen that I agree with Mr. Geeky in regarding the till as a moraine profonde, but differ as to the mode and place of its deposition. He argues that it was formed under glaciers of the thickness he describes, while their whole weight rested upon it. This appears to me to be physically impossible. If such glaciers were capable of eroding solid rocks, the slimy mud of their own deposits could not possibly have resisted them. The only case where this might have happened is where a mountain wall has blocked the further downward progress of a glacier, or in pockets, or steep hollows which a glacier might have bridged over and filled up. But such pockets are by no means the characteristic localities of till, though the till of Switzerland may possibly show examples of the first case. The great depth of the inland lakes of Norway, their bottoms being usually far below that of the present sea bottom, is in direct contradiction of this. They should before all places, be filled with till, if the till were a ground moraine formed on land, but all we know of them confirms the belief that the glaciers deepened them by erosion instead of shallowing them by deposition. Mr. Geeky's able defense of Ramsey's theory of lake basin erosion is curiously inconsistent with his arguments in favor of the ground moraine. I fully concur with Mr. Geeky's arguments against the iceberg theory of the formation of the till. This, I think, he has completely refuted. Before concluding, I must say a few words on those curious lenticular bends of sand and gravel in the till which appear so very puzzling. A simple explanation is suggested in connection with the above-sketched view of the formation of the till. All glaciers, whether in arctic or temperate climates, are washed by streamlets during summer, and these commonly terminate in the form of a stream or cascade pouring down a moulin, a well bored by themselves and reaching the bottom of the glacier. Now what must be the action of such a downflow of water upon my supposed submarine bed of till, just grazing the bottom of the glacier? Obviously, to wash away the fine clay particles, and leave behind the coarser sand or gravel. It must form just such a basin or lenticular cavity as Mr. Geeky describes. The oblong shape of these, their longer axis coinciding with the general course of the glacier, would be produced by the onward progress of the moulin. The accordance of their other features with this explanation will be seen on reading Mr. Geeky's description page 18, 19, etc. The general absence of marine animals and their occasional exceptional occurrence in the intercalated beds is just what might be expected under the conditions I have sketched. In the gloomy, subglacial depths of the sea, 
drenched with continual supplies of fresh water and cooled below the freezing point by the action of salt water and the ice, ordinary marine life would be impossible, while, on the other hand, any recession of the glacial limit would restore the conditions of Arctic animal life, to be again obliterated with the renewed outward growth of the floating skirts of the inland ice mantle. But I must now refrain from the further discussion of these and other collateral details, but hope to return to them in another paper. In Through Norway with Ladies, I have touched lightly upon some of these, and have more particularly described some curious and very extensive evidences of secondary glaciation that quite escaped my attention on my first visit, and which, too, have been equally overlooked by other observers. In the above, I have endeavored to keep as nearly as possible to the main subject of the origin of the till and the character of the ancient ice sheet. End of section 16